You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. Our reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 47, verses 29 through 31, and chapter 48, verses 15 through 22. Please go there with me now. You can find that on pages 28 and 29 on the chairback Bibles in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take one as a gift from us. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on. And in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's head to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, Thank you for letting us gather this morning and worship you, Lord. I pray that you will give everyone ears to hear, Lord, hearts that will be opened, minds that will be opened, Lord, and that if there's anyone here, Lord, that doesn't know you, that he will be or she will be brought to you, Lord. I pray for Jeremy as he is about to come up here and... um, Give the people your word, Lord, and I just pray that you will bless him and bless everyone that's here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Michaela. Are you spiritually mature? Are you spiritually mature? seems to me this question is actually way harder to answer than we might guess, and that is because, if we're honest, I think we all have a built-in bias to want to think of ourselves as more mature than we actually are. At least, I think that's the case for me. 
Just because we'd like to think of ourselves as spiritually mature doesn't mean we actually are. It's a little bit like reflexes. I've been told that when you survey a room like us and ask, do you have abnormally fast reflexes? Like, like if your hand is on the hot part of a stove, do you yank your hand back quicker than the average person? Or if you're driving and somebody kind of goes into your lane, are your reflexes quicker than the normal person? I've been told that in a group like this, if nobody else saw your answer, but you were just answering honestly between you and God, 75% of this room says, I have abnormally fast reflexes. When the truth is, only 10% of us have fast reflexes. 75% of us pretend. I think it just reveals that our self-assessment can't necessarily be trusted. And if you still don't believe me, then think to yourself how much time you spent on your phone last week, write a number down, and then go look. <laughs> I... <laughs> write down how much money you thought you spent last week, then go look. I think it's possible many of us make this mistake with spiritual maturity, not just because we're unwilling to be honest with ourselves, but I think also because we may have the wrong idea about how to measure spiritual maturity. See, too many of us, I think especially in a church like ours, have this concept that deep theological knowledge is what real spiritual maturity is, as if answering all the questions on a Jeopardy board about the Bible somehow is equivalent to being spiritually mature. Now, don't get me wrong. I like people to know their Bible. I, I want for you to grow in understanding theology. I think that's important to occur. But just because you get answers right on a test doesn't necessarily mean you're spiritually mature. I mean, good grief. Satan could get an A on any theology test. That doesn't make him spiritually mature. What then is spiritual maturity and how do we grow in it? That's where this sermon is going today. And, and what we find here is we're getting near to the end of Genesis and we're getting near to the end of Jacob's life. Jacob is a major character in the book of Genesis and we've seen him for the last 147-ish years of his life go from terribly immature, not even a believer in the one true God, to now as he nears death having grown in spiritual maturity. And what we want to do by looking at Jacob in these three sections of our text is take for us what does spiritual maturity look like for us today. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you please open to Genesis 47 verse 29? And, and if you're new with us, you might be thinking, well, why do I have to open my Bible? It's because I want you to know that I didn't just show up last week and go, hmm, what do I want to preach on? I'll do spiritual maturity. Rather, that's what the text is doing, so I want to preach what the text says. That's the way we do it around here. We're going to see three aspects of Jacob's faith and how he grows in spiritual maturity. So look with me at the first indication. What is true spiritual maturity? Faith that God will keep his promises. Faith that God will keep his promises. In verse 29, Jacob's death is close. And so he calls in one of his sons to be with him. And original readers would have expected that his eldest gets called in. That would be the right person to pick. But this is a surprise. 
It's not the eldest, Reuben. It's Joseph. At the end of verse 29, look in the text. They make this special hand under the thigh commitment. If you're unfamiliar with such a thing, it's the equivalent of a handshake for us today. I promise to do this. So Joseph puts his hand under the thigh of Jacob. If you're thinking that sounds weird, it's actually not even as weird as it is in the original Hebrew context. Feel free to look that one up later. Pro tip, if you're going to shake on it with somebody in our modern age, do not do the hand under the thigh thing. People think that's really weird. (laughs) I was just being biblical, sprinkler guy. What's your problem? (laughs) The sprinkler guys don't like it. Just take my word for that. What is Jacob asking Joseph to promise in this hand under the thigh commitment? It's to take his bones back to the promised land. That's what it's all about. A promise that Joseph will take his dad's bones back to the promised land. And here's what the original audience would have seen in this commitment. They would have seen Jacob in his old age. He has matured in faith. Jacob's faith has now grown stout and strong. For while he understands he will be dying in Egypt, he knows Egypt is not the promised land. What original readers recognize is Abraham got promised land. That blessing went on to Isaac. He was promised land in Canaan. Isaac's chosen son Jacob has been promised land. And the land is not Egypt. And so Jacob, in the face of his death, he knows he's about to pass away. He says, look, somehow I am going to inherit that land because God made me that promise. And I would guess Jacob doesn't know all the details, but at some level he can conceptualize, my bones cannot stay in Egypt. They have to go back to God's country so that whatever happens in the afterlife, however resurrection works, when I come back to life, that's my inheritance. So Joseph, don't you dare bury me here in Egypt soil. You take me back to that promised land. What I want us to see is Jacob's faith in the face of death. God's going to keep his promise. God's going to keep his promise. That's what Jacob's declaring. The question then for Israel, the original audience of this book, would have been parallel. Hey, Israelites, do you, like Jacob, believe that God is going to keep his promise to you? And are you willing to believe that, Israel, when you face death? See, see, keep in mind that when... When Moses probably wrote the book of Genesis, the Israelites are wandering around the wilderness. They're just waiting and wandering like, what is happening for us? And and all of those million people who came out of Egypt, who walked through the Red Sea, have now been wandering around eating manna for breakfast and just wondering, when do we make it to the promised land? And as many of them begin to die, the question would be, wait, God made promises to us. Is he going to keep them? Jacob had grown in faith. For the Israelites, they too were called to grow spiritually mature and have faith in God's promises even in the face of death. The question for us today, church, a question that indicates how spiritually mature we are, do you believe that God will keep his promises to you? This question, easy enough to answer, I suppose we could Just write it down if we were taking a test, but beware of answering in the same way we might respond to, do we have fast reflexes? 
Because the moment that suffering enters our world, the moment death starts to show its unwanted face, it's far more natural for us to doubt God's promises rather than to double down on God's promises. But what Jacob's showing us is, he's saying, man, I am going to have faith in God's promises. You might be spiritually immature if you are short-sighted regarding God's promises to you. If, if you're wondering, man, what's a litmus test here? How would I know? If, if you find in your heart of hearts that you're functionally looking at God going, hey, chip, chop, chip, God, got a timetable here. When are you going to keep your promises? Those growing in faith like Jacob, they take the long view. They take the long view with God's promises and they say in their heart of hearts, I don't know how, I don't know when, but I'm going to anchor in his promises to me. My challenge for us from this first section, grow in spiritual maturity, Mill Creek, by believing God really keeps his promises. Believe God really keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. That's actually the book of Genesis in four words. We've been trying to reiterate that every single sermon, every time we get back to Genesis, God keeps his promises throughout this book. God makes promises, he keeps them. He makes promises, he keeps them. He makes promises and he keeps them. And the whole point of this book is that we would look at God and go, he is a promise-keeping God. In fact, verse 31 puts a bow on this as Jacob bows. Do you see that there in the text? He bows. Turns out that's a fulfillment of a dream that Joseph had back in Genesis 37. Joseph had a dream when he was 17 that everybody in his family would bow down to him. We have not seen Jacob bow to him yet. We do in this text. God keeps his promises, church. First section done. Second section takes a little bit longer because it's 20 verses. Move with me to point two. What is true spiritual maturity? It's seeing the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. It's seeing the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. Now, I don't want you to get lost, so real quickly, what we're going to see is that the person that Jacob blesses is not the person that Joseph expects to be blessed. And what that proves is that God's kingdom can seem upside-down to some of us. But from the text, not so long after Joseph made that under-the-thigh promise with Jacob. Jacob asks him back for a second meeting. Okay, and in this second meeting, Joseph brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh's the eldest, Ephraim's the second born. Jacob sits, it, sits up, verse 5, makes an incredible announcement, and here it is. He just unilaterally decides, I will be adopting your two sons. <laughs> and... Um, now, that's different than the adoption the way we think it. That doesn't mean that those sons are going to move in with Jacob for good grief. He's only got a few days or weeks to live. And th the boys don't have to call Jacob dad. That's not the kind of adoption that this is. This is all about inheritance. This is all about inheritance. And I don't know if you've ever been through an inheritance issue, but, but for most cases, in my experience, maybe yours as well, if a grandparent dies then all of those assets and whatever's left over gets divided between the kids. And the grandkids 
I suppose they may get something, but usually they don't get the same kind of slice of the pie, if you will, as the kids. But what's happening here is these two grandkids of Jacob are being elevated. They're being elevated. And here's something else that the original audience would have known. The original audience would have known that in traditional Near Eastern inheritance law, which, by the way, if you forgot to brush up on that over breakfast this morning, here it is. You take all the, all the sons, and then you divide all of the property between the sons, but the eldest gets double portion. All right, so I, I know it still might be a little early for math for some of you. Jacob has 12 sons. The traditional way to do it is you take all of jo- Jacob's stuff, and you divide it into 13. Well, wait, he only had 12 sons. Why 13? Because the eldest gets a double portion. So the eldest would get two thirteenths, everybody else would get one thirteenth, and that's the way it's normally done. But what Jacob's doing is he is replacing his eldest Reuben with Joseph's two sons, and he's giving the birthright blessing, the double blessing to Joseph's two kids. That's what's happening in our text. And interestingly enough, I found that uh, there's something of a covenant ceremony happening, something uh, that would resemble um, a modern-day wedding. If you've ever been to a wedding where the preacher says, I did this on the last wedding, I did a, who, who is uh, offering their daughter in marriage today? The answer is her mother and I, from the father. Who gives this woman to be married to this man is the way I've said it previously. And in a similar way that that kind of kicks off a marriage ceremony in our con- context and culture, there's a phrase in the text that would have left the original audience going, oh, we're having a formal adoption ceremony. And it's that phrase in the text, who are these? Who are these? And Joseph's answer formalizes the adoption ritual as Jacob and Joseph begin this little ceremony where Jacob hugs the boys, then says, I didn't expect to see you again, Joseph. Now I get to see your kids. The next part of the ceremony, Joseph bows in humble acceptance. But verse 13 is where the adoption ritual gets kind of weird, at least for Joseph. In fact, like in a modern day wedding, if you're ever, if you're getting married one of these days, ladies, just understand something's going to go weird in that ceremony. And it's okay. Fellas, same thing. Just something goes weird. And you just laugh and move on. Well, something goes weird in this ceremony. And what goes weird is that, is that Jacob is supposed to bless these two sons. And his right hand, this one's my right hand. Uh, his right hand is supposed to go to the eldest. And his left hand goes to the second born. Meaning the oldest, Manasseh, is supposed to get the best blessing. And then Ephraim, second, gets leftovers. But what Jacob does is he crosses his arms. Do you see that there in the text? He crosses his arms, meaning the eldest is going to get the leftovers, and the second son, Ephraim, is going to get the best. And so, I mean, you can almost imagine what Joseph's thinking in this moment. Oh, good grief, Dad. He's 147 years old. He can't even tie his shoes. Poor guy's really confused. So, oh, Dad. Silly Dad. So he says, verse 17, Dad, don't do it like that. You need to do it like this. And then verse 19, look what, look what Dad says. Look what Jacob says. He corrects Joseph. He says, I know. I know, my son, I know. 
Manasseh, that's the eldest, he will become a great people, but Ephraim, the younger of the two, will be greater than Manasseh. The blessing finishes in verse 20. That ends this ancient adoption ceremony. All right, so this section, it would have answered several questions for the original audience. One of them would have been, why doesn't Joseph have a tribe? Like if you ever read through the rest of the Old Testament, you'll notice there's 12 tribes, but Joseph isn't one of them. You want to know why? Because of the adoption ceremony. Joseph actually gets the double portion. Ephraim is a tribe. Manasseh is a tribe. Joseph doesn't have a tribe because he got the double. He got what Reuben should have got. It would have answered that question. It also would have answered the question if they're in the wandering in the wilderness or when they finally made it to the promised land, a kid could have said, hey, dad, uh, why is the tribe Ephraim so powerful? Because here's the deal. If you're going to do an AP top 12 poll of the tribes, guess who's number one? It's Ephraim. It's Ephraim. In fact, Deuteronomy 33, verse 17, it shows that Ephraim actually becomes the prevailing tribe. They're like the Alabama of college. They're like the Ohio State, okay? Ephraim is the best. How did they get to be the best? Because of God's blessing right here in this adoption ceremony. Those questions would have been answered by this ceremony. But to the point of Jacob's maturity, to the point of his spiritual maturity, what I want you to notice is this, that Jacob is seeing and I'm confident that before the ceremony, this was his plan. I don't think he just willy-nilly thought, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, meeny, mom, Toby, pick this one. I think he walked into that thing knowing number two wins. Number two wins this deal, not number one. Well, how did he come to that conclusion? Well, I think he just reflected on the story of God so far in the book of Genesis that we've seen. Reminds me of the Wingfeather saga. That's a four-part book written by Andrew Peterson, Christian artist, he's the author of the song, Is He Worthy? We'll be singing that here in a minute. Andrew Peterson writes in this book series that if you need a Christmas gift for teenagers, this is a great book series, he makes it in his series that the eldest son is not the king. It's not the heir apparent. The eldest son is not the heir apparent. The king will be the second son. The second son. How many of you are number two in birth order in your family? Raise your hand. Number two birth order. Hope for us. Hope for us. We were always number two. Uh, who's number one? Who's the number one, number one kid? Wah, wah. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, who's number three or more? Who's number three or more? All right. Like you're not even in the text, so I'm so really sorry about that. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. I mean, you were, okay. We, I think Peterson pulls this idea that the second is going to get the kingship from Genesis. And, and this is one of those things that when we started this book, I didn't get. But I see it now. Maybe you do too. Cain's the eldest. Does Cain get the blessing? No, it's not Cain. It's Abel. Or fast forward. Ishmael's the first son of Abraham. Does he get the blessing? No, it's Isaac. Keep going. Does Esau get the blessing? He's the firstborn. No, it's Jacob. Keep going. Does Reuben get the blessing? No. It's Joseph. Keep going. Does Manasseh get the blessing? No. It's Ephraim. I think Jacob walked into this little adoption ceremony knowing, 
I don't know why God does it this way. And this may not be the way the rest of the world does it, but this is the way God does it. And I find it interesting that in all of this book of Genesis, Joseph is always shown in an incredibly favorable light. This is like one of the only points that Joseph doesn't get it. But Jacob does. God's kingdom is upside down. It ain't the way you think, Joseph. This isn't the way Egypt does it. This is the way God does it. The question then for Israel, as they're wandering in the wilderness, is parallel. Would they, like Jacob, believe in the upside-down nature of God's kingdom? Would they believe in God's kingdom being countercultural, if you will? And Deuteronomy 7 makes this so clear on why God picked Israel, Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Hey, Israel, you got to get this. You didn't get picked because you're so awesome. But God picked you because he loved you and he wanted to keep his promises to you. I mean, it's like this. If God was going to pick an NFL team out of the AFC, you want to know who he wouldn't pick? Well, the Chiefs and the Bills, of course, because they're the best. <laughs> All right, maybe that's too far. Okay, back to this. For us today, the same question to challenge our spiritual maturity. Here's an indication of your spiritual maturity. If you're, you're really wondering, litmus test before God, am I growing in spiritual maturity? Here's the question. Do you believe in the upside-down nature of God's kingdom? When you look out at our world and our culture and you are bombarded, just like I am, with all of these messages on the way that the world thinks, do you realize that in God's economy, it's often the opposite? I mean, Jesus gets this in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes. Let me just list off a couple. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the meek? What does the world think about the meek? The world doesn't care about the meek, but in Jesus' economy, the meek shall inherit the earth. And we can keep going in Matthew 5 in lots of places for us today. Here's a question that indicates spiritual maturity. Do we have faith in God's upside-down kingdom? Because the way of Jesus, friends, is not the way of the world. And, and here's a warning for some of you. If some of you are so, are so committed to a theological perspective that the rest of the world pats you on the back for, if some of you are having an allergic reaction to some of the views of Scripture that the world hates and you think, well, I don't know if I want to hold on to those or not. If there's parts of your Bible that are embarrassing to you, to tell the rest of the world you actually believe, you may not be as spiritually mature as you'd like to think. Because 
Just realize, my friends, the world really is lying when it tells you that true life is found in stuff or true life is found in experiences or true life is found in how many commas you have in your checking account or true life is found in comfort or true life is found in sex or true life is found in fame or true life is found in climbing the ladder and just crushing everybody underneath you or or true life can be found when you're finally true to whoever you are inside and you declare that to everybody and you have autonomy and you're deciding you're, that's what the world is preaching at us. But understand the upside down nature of God's kingdom. I mean, look, look how bizarre this is. This is, we are in 2022. And where are we looking for life? Consider how backwards this is to our world. Uh, Pastor Jeremy, where do you anchor everything you do at your church? In a book. Well, what about all the scientifically proven verifiable data, blah, 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 blah. No, we just go to a book. What do you guys do on a Sunday morning? I open up a book. I spend a week thinking about what this part of the book says, and then I preach it. By God's grace, he does stuff. This is where we find life, in an old, hard-to-read book. That makes no sense to the world. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul calls it foolish. This is foolish in the ways of the world. For us, we're, we're willing to admit this is upside down. God's kingdom is upside down. Grow in spiritual maturity by realizing that. Second point done, let's move to our final one. The third indication of spiritual maturity. What is spiritual maturity? It's believing that those faithful in suffering will receive an inheritance. In verse 21, Jacob says for a third time, I'm about to die, which you know, kind of proves to us theology nerds that this section we just looked at really is one section, has three different parts of him saying he's going to die. And then in verse 22, some special language about a piece of land. Let me read 22. Look at it with me, please. Moreover, Jacob says, I've given to you, Joseph, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now, we don't know from Genesis what Jacob's talking about, but, but somewhere, somehow, he and maybe some people with him defeated an enemy and they took over some mountain slope. I look out the windows over here to my right and there's this little slope back there and so I'm imagining it's something like that. Jacob, he beat the Amorites off or the Shechemites off and, and, um, and now he has this wonderful mountain slope and I take it that this piece of property there in the promised land is like prime stuff, that if you would have asked the brothers, hey, what piece of property do you hope that you would get, that they'd go, oh man, that mountain slope is dope. (laughs) I don't know who's going to get that, but if it's mine, y'all can visit sometimes, but I hope it's mine. And Jacob says, I'm going to give it to you, Joseph. And in the context of where we're at in the book, I'm convinced that the reason he gives it to Joseph is because Joseph was faithful in suffering through Egypt. Joseph, you get the best piece of land here. Jacob, as dad, realizing, hey man, if it wasn't for your faithful suffering, we'd have no shot. But you were faithful. You were faithful, so now our family is surviving the famine, and we have a future. And this property then stands out as a nod. Hey, Joseph, your suffering mattered. Your suffering gives you a special inheritance. So then for the Israelites, here's what they would have had to consider in view of these couple verses. Would they believe 
that God had an inheritance for them after all those years of suffering in Egypt. See, all of these people wandering out of Egypt, they had suffered in Egypt like Joseph. And they perhaps had said, does anybody see our suffering? Does anybody see our pain? Perhaps similar to Joseph, who when he's in prison wondered, does anybody see my suffering? Does anybody see my pain? And here we then have Jacob, his dad, saying, I see your suffering. I see your pain, and I have an inheritance for you. Joseph had a special inheritance for his suffering. Israel would have a special inheritance in the promised land for their suffering. The question then for us today, write it down if you would. Do we believe that God has an inheritance for us after all our suffering? Here's, here's a question to indicate your spiritual maturity. Do you believe that there's an inheritance awaiting you for your suffering? Now, I grant your suffering is different than the Israelites in Egypt or the suffering of, of Joseph when he was in Egypt. But church, can't we be honest? Man, there's some difficulties that we have to walk through. And that suffering is hard. There's challenges some of you are carrying in here right now. Some of you have shared them with us and the elders and we're praying for you. And they're hard. And there's some of you that you're walking in here with some sufferings you haven't told anybody. And they're just, they, they feel like they're soul crushing at some moments. And do we believe that because of faithfully suffering, we're going to get an inheritance? But, but here's where that question begins to kind of break down a little bit if we're honest. For for honest, we may grant, yeah, there are people who are suffering, and even I've perhaps suffered at times, but, but pastor, I can't claim to be righteous in my suffering. And that question breaks down a little bit because we can grant that if you are righteous in suffering, God gives you an inheritance. That's what happens to Joseph. And, and we know that that's true for Jesus. But for us, we know we're not faithful in suffering, don't we? But here's what's so beautiful about confessing that we haven't been perfectly faithful in our suffering is that it does ultimately point us to Jesus. Here's what I mean. Those who are spiritually mature understand that the only reason that they can be a part of God's family, the only reason we have any hope that someday we are going to be God's people in God's place under God's rule is because there was a faithful son who came to earth and suffered perfectly and did exactly right. That's our only hope for the future. There was a faithful son, not us, it's not you, it's not me, who faithfully suffered, died, and is now due a great reward and inheritance. And it is Joseph's suffering then in Egypt, this suffering that God ultimately used to save Jacob and his family from famine and death. It is that suffering of Joseph which points us to Jesus Christ and his suffering on earth. For it was Jesus' suffering that God used to save you and I from spiritual death. See, see there in Jesus' final days, he demonstrated perfect spiritual maturity. Perfect spiritual maturity. Je Jesus believed all of God's promises. Jacob is in our text. He's facing death and he's saying, I'm going to believe that God will keep his promises even in the face of death. Jesus, he does that and more. In Christ's last moment, he had faith that God would keep his promises through his death. 
Jesus' spiritual maturity is seen as he's believing God keeps his promises perfectly. It's also seen as Jesus believes in God's upside-down kingdom. You know, in the Old Testament, it says, you are cursed if you hang on a tree. And Jesus knew in God's upside-down economy, you could crucify me on a tree, but because I've been perfectly righteous, that death is actually going to become life. That's upside-down. Jesus believed in God's upside-down economy, that if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to be a servant of all. You want to be first in God's economy, you've got to be last. Jesus believed in God's upside-down kingdom, that greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friend. We see Jesus' spiritual maturity as he died on the cross for our sins. And he did die for our sins. He didn't die for his sins. Let the record show, Jesus did not die on the cross for his sins. He died for your sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. It's Jesus' suffering then that allows us to receive an inheritance. And, and Jesus' reward, that which he has rightly earned, gets imputed to us. That's a fancy word for saying it gets credited to us, which is another fancy way of saying God looks on us who have faith in Jesus, and he sees, and, and he smells, and he hears Jesus. Jesus' robes of righteousness, as it were, placed on all who have their faith in him, so that when God looks at us, he goes, you are my son, and with you I am pleased. And I'm going to give you a special reward. I've got a special piece of land that I've been saving just for you because of your righteousness in suffering. And we say, well, I didn't righteously suffer. God declared us righteous. He justified us. And so it is, as it were, we receive Christ's reward. That's Romans 8. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. We get a, part, we get a slice of that God inheritance pie. If you're here and you're not a Christian, here's the challenge for you today. If you have not called on Christ, you must know this. You are not saved. You're not saved. And what is more, without Christ, you will never be saved. There is no other name under heaven and earth by which you can be saved. It is Christ alone. And one day, like Jacob in our text, you are going to have to face death. And without Christ, you have no access to God's promises. Without Christ, you have no access to God's upside-down kingdom. Without Christ, you have no inheritance awaiting you. At least no inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. So call on Christ. If you're here and don't believe Believe today he suffered, he died, he rose again. Repent of your sins and begin this journey of spiritual maturity. Believing, I'm going to believe in your promises, God. I'm going to believe in the upside down nature of your kingdom, God. And I want to receive the inheritance Christ's suffering has won for me. If you're not here, call on Christ. If you're here and you don't believe in Christ, call on him. For those here who do believe, you count yourself a Christian. Good news for you. Be encouraged. You got a wicked awesome inheritance awaiting for you. You will be the envy of all those not in Christ. Like Jacob, who defeated an enemy and gifted an inheritance to his son, Christ defeated an enemy and is gifting an inheritance to us. But here's the challenge. 
In these days, we struggle to remember and believe this crucial message. And we're tempted to think in moments of doubt that God's not going to keep his promises. We're going to face the struggle of seeing the way the world does it and going, well, maybe the world's right on this one. Maybe, maybe this Bible stuff's not really true. We're going to be tempted to buy into the world's ways instead of God's upside-down ways. Tempted to reject the path of suffering. But how will we make it home then? By repenting of our sin and realizing that the more we grow in spiritual maturity, it's not the, the, the more we grow in spiritual maturity will be evidenced by how much more we need Christ. In fact, the true evidence of spiritual maturity is not that you confess less but that you confess more. Repent of sin. Trust in Christ. Ask him to renew your heart. Ask him for a spiritually mature heart. And then place your faith in the new heavens and the new earth, this, this land that is ours to inherit. Not so different than folks like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did, who we read about in Hebrews eleven thirteen. They died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. Friends, Let's look forward to this true and better city that God has called us to. We must believe we're God's people. One day to live in God's land, under God's rule. And as we wait for that glorious day, let us grow in spiritual maturity. Believing God keeps his promises. Seeing his upside down kingdom. And awaiting the inheritance that we get because of Christ. Will you pray with me please? Lord, we need you. And I pray that you would do your mighty work of taking this text and helping us by faith believe it. For any here who don't know you, would you save? You are powerful to save, Holy Spirit, and I pray you would. For those here who do believe in you, I pray you would strengthen our faith and grant us grace to walk through whatever you have for us these coming days. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.